Hi everyone and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. The idea behind these podcasts is to find a better way of us being able to create performance. So we're interested in understanding ourselves, our teams and culture and supporting other people along the way. And we're also interested in the science behind high performance as well as the art of how we actually go about delivering it. And then asking, of course, the questions about why do we do what we do? We're keen to explore all the key areas, what are the determining factors of high performance? Get to know some of the people along the way who've been responsible for driving high performance. And we'll be trying to learn the lessons. How can we all develop so that where we're looking back over our lives, that we can be content with what we've achieved but also be proud about the way that we've done it. You can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes and supportingchampions.co.uk to get these insights straight to your inbox. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Supporting Champions podcast. In this episode, I talk to David Fletcher, who's an expert in the area of adversity. First, I talk to David about his background as a competitive swimmer. Then I talk to him about his early career and how he developed an interest in research, and then we start to explore this concept of adversity, how we can cope under stress, how we can draw strength from different situations, and the strategies that can get us through difficult situations. We also talk a little bit about how stress can spill over into mental health issues, but we try and draw lessons from the best. So how do the best performers and cultures build capacity to thrive? At the end of the episode, I'll share with you my take-home messages, but would love to hear from you. What are your comments, what are your questions, and what are your thoughts on this area? Well, welcome, Dave. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, absolute pleasure to, to have you with us for, the, for this recording. Um, so, Dave, you've got so much expertise in the area of resilience and adversity and organisational stresses, and I'm, I'm really keen to unpack that and, and get into the, some of the, the, the detail. But... Um, just tell us a little bit about your background. Where, where's home? Where's, where's your hometown? Uh, hometown for me is Cheltenham in Gloucestershire. Oh. That was where I was born and uh, brought up in Cheltenham. And uh, I guess in many ways that's where it all started for me because uh, as an 11-year-old I was sat on the sitting room floor and uh, watching the Olympics at the time, which was the Seoul Olympics right. in 88, and uh, Adrian Morehouse got the gold medal. And uh, I was that kid who sat there and said, that that's what I want to do. And so that for me was a, a big life-changing moment in my sort of career in sport. I didn't know it at the time, yeah. uh, but got down the local swimming pool and uh, the, the year afterwards, uh, myself and a few lads went up to the nationals for, for the relay and uh, it all went from there. So. Oh, so Adrian Morehouse, breaststroke, was, that, was, was breaststroke your, your uh, event? No, it wasn't actually. Right. That was my worst one. If you speak to any swimmers, they're either a breaststroke <laughs> and they can't do the other, yeah. so they can do the other strokes and not the breaststroke. And I was the uh, I was the one who couldn't do the breaststroke particularly well, so I was a backstroker and oh, uh, really specialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, it was, it was good fun, and uh, I swam with some pretty good swimmers at the time. Joe Deakins went to the Olympics in '92. Right. Um, and then uh, I went down to boarding school in Devon, uh, Pelly College, just uh, on the edge of Dartmoor, which was where Sharon Davis was based a few years before me. But it was big into swimming, so there was um, uh, Robin Brew and Paul Brew, who were big swimmers in the 80s and uh, trained with them in the lead up to the 96 and 2000 Olympic trials. So 
my life was very much swimming. I took a year out when I was 19. Right. Uh, training for the Olympic trials, so got a bit of an insight into the life of, of top-level swimming and, and the dedication that it, it required to compete at that level. So. So you had quite a few quite pivotal role models to, to look up to there in terms of people like Adrian Morehouse, but having a, having a, a place of learning that had some of the high achievers like Sharon Davis come through it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very lucky, actually, because um, my time in Gloucestershire, I had Joe Deakins, and, and her work ethic was immense. And as a, a 13, 14-year-old going into that squad, uh, I was quite young, but I, I yeah. had, that, as you say, that role model who gave me an insight into what it really took to achieve. I mean, it was one thing winning county championships and, and qualifying for the nationals, but it was yeah. a completely different ball game, uh, qualifying for Olympics. And, and then, as I say, being down at a, a boarding school where you were um, eating, breathing, sleeping, swimming all the time, you were in a dorm with other swimmers. Right, okay. Uh, we were travelling around the country, around Europe, uh, competing every weekend. Um, yeah, you, you learn a work ethic for sure, but there's a lot of fun in there as well, and the, the team bonding and the camaraderie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you just got insights into what it took to achieve at that highest level, which yeah. I, was, I was very lucky at that age to get that. Yeah. How aware of you uh, of that was we when as you were going through it of, of sort of almost sensing the environment and the dynamic as opposed to perhaps just experiencing it. Uh, both actually. I mean, I was living and breathing being a competitive swimmer and trying to enhance my own performance. Mm. Uh, but I was also mindful at the time about my own studies because being a swimmer, I was, you know, we, we talk about being a zombie really. We were walking around just dead, you know, the early mornings and the training. Yeah. I was doing sort of five hours a day. So my academics, I was just getting by. So um, I certainly didn't set the world on fire with my GCSEs and my A levels. Mm. And it got to that age, uh, sort of 18, 19, when I was applying for university. My dream was to go to Loughborough, swim at Loughborough, hopefully yeah. get a degree, go to the Olympics. And I applied to Loughborough and they said, yeah, basically your grades aren't good enough and you've got to be on a national team uh, to get in for the swimming, really. Um, and so I missed out. And then I took the year out training and then uh, I missed out. I reapplied and missed out again and got the rejection okay. letter on my 19th birthday. And then a couple of months later, I went to Olympic trials, missed out on the Olympics. So that year in 96, well, that was a lot of fun living the dream of being a swimmer. The realities yeah. hit me around, um, you know, what are you going to do with, with your life if, if you're not going to cut it right at the top level of sport? But also my academics were nothing special as well. So um, yeah, 96 was a big year for me. So. Okay, so quite a pivotal moment in terms of deciding direction, but also taking a few hits yourself. The the losses, the not getting in, the not getting selected. Yeah, that's right. So I finished the year out and I went home to Cheltenham and worked as a lifeguard for the summer. And it was the first time in my life that I didn't, realize, didn't really feel like I had that much direction in the sense of I always knew in my own mind that I wanted to be a top-level swimmer. And I think going to those Olympic trials made me sort of question whether I was, I was cut out to do that. Okay. Uh, and then fortunately, um, University of Wales Cardiff, which is now Cardiff Metropolitan University, came in and offered me a place. And so I took that place at university and went in the autumn of 96. Um, but I remember my parents dropping me off and I was, it was the first time in my life that I did, it wasn't Dave Fletcher the swimmer. Right. It was just Dave Fletcher, one of many undergraduate students. Yeah. And as I said, I was nervous because I'd taken a year out and I was am I academically up to getting a degree. And I can distinctly remember sitting, when my parents left, sitting in my room, not knowing anyone, and I was thinking, I've got to get a 2-1, I can't blow this, I've got to get out of the, the, 
degree with a qualification. Yeah. And um, so, it, yeah, it, it was a big year for me, and there was I, it's not adversity compared to what adversity some people experience, but it. it it was that realisation that mm. I wasn't necessarily going to cut it at the highest level of sports. Yeah. It sounds like you're quite self-aware of your status at the time, where you weren't necessarily on fire academically. Your swimming had kind of gone off the boil, um, and so you're quite self-aware as to this is where I'm at, and mm. but this is where I want to get to. Yeah, that was it, and I wasn't even sure where I wanted to get to. Um, but I was just, I guess, I felt, you know, what, you know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking my parents have sacrificed so much as well. They've, yeah. They've, you know, ferried me around the, the country. They've paid for me to go to boarding school, and I was thinking, I, I don't feel as if I've got a huge amount to show for that. And so, for that couple of months, and when I arrived at university, I loved it, enjoyed every every minute of the experience. But then the next turning point for me was getting the first assignment back, and it was um, an assignment on sport management, which I didn't know anything about, I hadn't done it before. And so I was sort of thinking, as long as I can pass this assignment, and the assignment came back first one, and I got uh, a first in the seventies. And that, for me, was a huge turn. You know, I can remember even just turning it over, looking at the grade and being gobsmacked. And right. thought, crikey, that's probably my worst subject here. Um, I could, you know, in the other subjects, which I'm enjoying a lot more, yeah. um, I, I, I could do a lot better. And so, yeah, all of a sudden, I uh, threw myself into studies and academia, and then that side of things took off. But Were you still swimming at the same time? Yeah, I was. I, I scaled back. Uh, I did the uh, World Cup in 98 and swam very well, actually, off less training. I mean, as a, as a physiologist, you know about the whole debate over uh, sort of mileage and quality and yeah. things like that. So I actually, for a couple of years, swam fast. But uh, my aspirations of being a top-level swimmer um, sort of ebbed away. But I did the 2000 Olympic trials as well. Um, but my mindset was different. The swimming wasn't the number one priority as okay. it had been before, and uh, the academics took off. Mm. Mm. So I'm interested that that first early success in in your academic, um, but but not necessarily expecting it from a position of self doubt and uncertainty as to how you might perform. Mm. Um, how important was your sort of swim training background on on your realization? Actually, I can do this, and I'm quite competitive about getting some results from this. It, it was huge actually because as I mentioned before with the swimming I was going into my A-level lessons just totally dead basically, right. really tired, I had to miss lessons a week, being at boarding school we had lessons on a, a Saturday morning so virtually all my A-level biology lessons I missed because um, I was away at swim, swim camps and things and swim competitions. So all of a sudden I'm in a position where I can go to all the, the sessions. I'm living the dream learning about sport, which was what I always wanted to do. Mm. Uh, I had some great tutors at um, Cardiff Met. Um, Sheldon Hampton at the time was the sports psychologist for the British swimming team. So we resonated and um, hit it off really well. Um, and that work ethic as well, it, just just going into lectures first thing and not being... You know, you know, other yeah. students for other reasons might yeah. be tired for staying up late at night, but I just didn't have that um, shattered feeling all of a sudden. <laughs> you were a massive taper of excitement and, and energy. I, yeah, most yeah, most yeah. swimmers or any cyclists in a big training phase, they are 
Yeah, like you say zombies. So, so you're cutting back to swimming. You find a, found a passion that excites your brain, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I bet you're a bundle of energy. You wander around Cardiff, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, and just uh, and, and as I say, I kept the swimming ticking over. So I did have that there to keep fit and uh, the social life and the social aspect as well. Uh, I mean, my father as well was a scientist. He worked at the um, GCHQ, the Government Communication Headquarters in Cheltenham. And so that's another interesting angle, I guess, in my development, because his idea of helping me as a young swimmer was to apply science to my performance in sport. Right. But he was a hard-nosed empiricalist. He, he was um, an engineer by trade. And so he never really understood application or coaching uh, in the sense of applying. So I, it, from, the, from about 11 or 12, I was reading academic papers and he would be explaining what the implications wow, were. Wow, that's unusual. It, it, yeah, it is. But looking back now, that's what he was... He thought he was preparing me to be a top-level swimmer in the best way that he could. Yeah. He was actually preparing me to get a PhD, I think. Right. <laughs> um, which I'm glad about now, obviously. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Another <laughs> angle, you know, going into university and, and being confronted by peer-reviewed journals. Uh, I think a lot yeah. of students can get thrown by that and deciphering oh. them. Um, but I, I'd had to sort of apprenticeship already in that area so so you had you really valued that objective information being able to to evaluate I, different ideas uh, how they can contribute to the priority of swimming but then that applying and, and being useful skill set that kind of kick-started your academics yeah that's it I mean he would um, you know with a stopwatch he'd be trying different training techniques with me and analysing it and uh, it's kind of the beginnings of an experimental design a sort of before and after an yeah. intervention and we'd be down the local pool in Cheltenham uh, trying different things and he'd be showing me graphs at an early age um, saying this is working that's working I can remember going into the uh, the club championships just brimming with confidence because I had all this sort of data showing how my turns had improved right, and everything okay. so it was very much the beginnings of a sports science career. Um, um, yeah, so it's, yeah, I was very fortunate actually. That, that is such a powerful concept, isn't it? Where and, and having having coached athletes, I felt that uncertainty and, and uh, you going into a, a big competition, just not knowing how the performance is going to go, and having a data set that all indicates it's going as good, as well as it ever has done. Gives you as a coach, but also as a performer, a huge amount of, of confidence. Yeah, that's it. And yeah, as you say, as an athlete, I was brilliant, but also the lessons I, I took from that, uh, and you know, the space that you and I work in in terms of uh, actually working with high performers and athletes, mm -hmm. that interface between the physiological preparation, but also the spillover into the, the psychological preparation yeah. around self confidence and self belief. And the real power is when you can bring those areas together and, uh, and you get that harmony in terms of the preparation. Mm. Yeah, another nice insight at an early age. Yeah. So you, so you finished up at Cardiff, I presume you did well. Um, and where was, where was next for you? Well, Loughborough, actually. I sort of had that, uh, be, having been rejected a couple of times from Loughborough, there was unfinished <laughs> business. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Let this guy in. Yeah, yeah, that was it. I think they just got fed up with me. Yeah. And, uh, so I went on and did a master's, and uh, I, did, I did well at the undergraduate degree and uh, really turned things around from the A-levels and uh, went on to do a master's in uh, sports science at Loughborough, yeah. uh, which was a fantastic experience and, and helped me out a lot. And I also did um, a, you know, a big part of my career development was uh, an internship at British swimming at the same time right. so I was lucky to have that academic development but also have that experience 
of working alongside coaches. So I was in between um, Loughborough for my studies and then I was based down at Bath University with their youth programme. Oh, okay. So I was lucky that uh, British Swimming uh, facilitated that and then the coach at the time, Amanda Booth, really gave me free reign in terms of the psychological preparation of their youth swimmers. Mm. So I really... Um, yeah, learned my trade, I guess, in terms yeah. of standing up in front of an audience, working one-to-one with athletes, and uh, yeah, made some mistakes along the way. But you know, you can't beat that experience at an early age. Yeah, you use that word free reign, and that's I think often um, now things are, the expectation is so high that people haven't got free reign. They've got they've sort of quite constrained. These are our expectations. This is how we need to do it. Those opportunities to explore and make mistakes and learn and and try things out is is quite a rarity. Yeah, so as you say, I think times have changed. I was lucky because being a swimmer myself, uh, Amanda knew me and knew other coaches who knew me, and I, yeah. I knew the culture, I knew the language, and I could also come in with ideas, and I could say, these are the, some of the things that I've seen, this is what I've learned from my studies, this mm. is kind of the fusion of the yeah. area, and I think um, it helped gain that trust. Uh, and then took things from there. I think it also helped slightly because probably the coaches' priorities um, lay elsewhere and they were quite happy to almost delegate the area of psychology to somebody else. As, you know, it was almost, don't make a mess of things, but do the best you can. Okay. Uh, and I, at the time, being really keen and having that opportunity, I just ran with it. And, um, yeah, that was, that was great for me. So, you know, for budding sports scientists... It's, it's the age-old thing. You've got to try and get that experience, and it's difficult to get the experience without already having it. But if you can get anything in, in terms of just working with a local club, particularly a sport that you know well. Hmm. I started in swimming, and I, I still do focus in swimming because that's my main passion. Yeah. Uh, but that's certainly how I got that initial start. Hmm. How much does the swimming background help or hinder? Um, I'm interested in this concept because with sort of deep expertise, around a given area on, uh, in psychology in your case but, but a sport specific background mm. sometimes uh, sometimes you meet someone who's been there and done it and they often say well in my day or well, this worked for me or it was um, it can almost be a hindrance of not necessarily seeing the bigger picture yeah no I think you're absolutely right both as a sports scientist or as a coach because you, you can have some preconceived ideas yeah. and um, I mean something I've reflected on quite quite a lot in my career is I've always been quite motivated and driven, so I find it a little bit hard or can find it a bit difficult to understand somebody who's not motivated and driven. Of course, that's a big part of psychology and helping people. So I think that is one area where it can be a bit of a hindrance. Um, But in terms of understanding the culture and the context, it was really useful in terms of gaining the trust and... um, yeah, it's it's different. You know, I did a bit. Of, you know, I contrast that experience with uh, I did an internship over in America a few years later, working at uh, the IMG Academies, which okay. is the, the famous Boletary Tennis Academy and some other sports. And I remember um, somebody saying, uh, somebody being ill, saying, "Can you come in and do a, a session with um, uh, the basketball team?" So you've got this sort of mid twenties, middle class, quite <laughs> quite straight laced sort of. 
bordering on kind of academic development guy coming in with it and there's these sprawling uh, US sort of teenagers that's sort of six foot four and that, that one bombed yeah I didn't know the lingo okay. uh, and so you, you you contrast that with the, the swimming experiences yeah it was um, yeah, black and white that right okay that was, a, that was a lesson in context and blending into the environment <laughs> very much so yeah yeah, yeah turn up your swimming cap on and <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, yeah and I, I only had about half an hour's warning as well so uh, that's an, I mean just you know I know we're, we're talking a lot about lessons learned yeah. and that summer over there was uh, immense because some days I was delivering up to three workshops a day often to 120 people ranging from the age of sort of six up to 26 Hispanics or um, East, Eastern Bloc countries people who couldn't speak English uh, as I said no PowerPoint um, often with not much warning so boy I, I learnt to present I okay. learnt to deliver workshops I learnt to be innovative I learnt to interact because they don't want to listen to you for too long so for me that internship experience was just sort of gold dust my learning curve I mean it wasn't a curve it was just straight up right okay so you had a whole variety but it sounds like you're being quite meticulous in making sure you're drawing out lessons as you go um, from that whole variety whereas perhaps you you're getting into a swimming uh, environment you you think I know how this works there's a bit of not well, complacency but you, you you know how it works and it and uh, you're able to ace it quite well mm. there is a little bit more uncertain yeah uh, no you're absolutely right and I think what's interesting there is when I started out those first few years of experience were very much in swimming I did the work at Bath some other work in swimming and then after a few years and I felt more confident, then I branched out and I did this internship. And most of my work over there was in tennis, which being an individual sport, I, I still knew quite a lot around that. But as I say, I got sort of plunged into some of these really alien environments. Mm. Uh, and that's where you sort of challenge yourself. So it's, you know, for developing practitioners and developing coaches, it's sort of judging that, where, where to stay safe and then where to push yourself at the right times. Because you do it in the wrong order and you can really, I don't know, have some clangers uh, okay. some poor experiences which probably don't help you out too much. Yeah, make all the mistakes over in the US and come back and just go <laughs> with all these lessons learned. Yeah, a bit like that. <laughs> no one knows about it. <laughs> what, um, so, so from there, you sound like you've had some amazing applied experiences that you then could use to sort of almost as a, as a reference point for your sort of further research work. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I've always... I've, I've always wanted it all in the sense of um, I, I, want, I want to be a successful scientist and mm. do cutting edge high quality research um, I've always wanted to help people uh, fundamentally that's the whole point of it all so uh, being a practitioner and, and working with individuals and teams in, in not just sport other areas of high performance uh, and then I also really enjoy teaching and educating uh, you know the, the, the future uh, and that can be a double edged sword actually because being really good at any of those areas is tough. Uh, all of those areas are yeah. competitive, they're all demanding. Um, so I, I really enjoy the fact that you get the, I get the interface between all of those areas, and as you alluded to there, I think they all inform one another. Right. Um, my, my research helps my teaching, for example, but my applied practice and sort of loops back into the research. Um, but it, yeah, it can make you quite busy, actually. Yeah, well, I think the, the tendency for, to, for, for people to become more specialised in one particular area, mm. whether that's a domain or of, of knowledge, um, or, 
or equally, this is what I am. I'm a, I'm a lecturer or I'm a researcher or I'm a consultant or I'm a, uh, I'm a support provider. Um, these badges that we want to attach to ourselves, it sounds like you've got a whole array, but ultimately you're, you're quite in touch it sounds with, with what you want to contribute to the, to the world. Yeah, I hope so, actually, yeah, that's it. I, do, I never saw myself as just being purely science or academia, even though my full-time job is within university, and yeah. that is my number one priority, is, is to produce high-quality high research and teaching. But I, I don't think I'll ever see the day where I sort of detach myself from the real world, and, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that, and I think it really informs what I do in the university. Mm. So I'm interested to, to sort of find out the origins of where you... You, you started, how you started to research, what, what you wanted to research and, and where that came from. Hmm. Yeah, so as I mentioned, when I went to um, Cardiff, uh, one of my key mentors was Sheldon Hampton, who was a psychology lecturer at the time. He worked with British Swimming. We'd actually had a few races during the 90s as right. well. So, uh, and he's a great guy and, and he, was, he was great to have a bit of banter with and, and just connect with. You know, we talk about mentors in, in, in sport and psychology and all these areas. And uh, he was great for me and, and helped me find that direction when I arrived at university and his PhD had been on um, anxiety responses in, in Olympic swimmers. Okay. So my undergraduate project really followed on from that and continued that theme. Um, we, we got to chatting and, and one of the observations that we had about a lot of the research in the 1990s was that it focused on exactly that, the hour before swimmers and other elite athletes mm. race. And that's kind of logical because anxiety can really affect performance and, and hinder performance. Um, but we also observed that, that at the time sport was really changing because UK sport come in with uh, EIS was being developed around that time, there was lottery funding and it was becoming a full-time profession for these athletes. Mm. And we said, well, what about the stress that they encounter, um, not the hour before they race, but all the other stuff and something can travel, funding, communicating with coaches, so that the list goes on. Mm. And there'd hardly been any research in that area in sport, but there'd been a lot outside of sport in the 80s and 90s in business around what, what we call organisational or occupational stress. Yeah. So that then led into my PhD, and my PhD specialised in that area. Okay, so, so give us some, some dates. When was this taking place? Because that's, that's potentially quite relevant to the, the topic that you're exploring, um, in the sense that I imagine, uh, and I can remember some of the documentaries or early conversations I had with, with performers in the mid-90s, they just need, that. The, the main stress was f making ends meet, yeah. um, having enough money, which, which five years later had kind of gone yeah. um, for the top athletes, that is, yeah. and probably replaced with other <laughs> stresses. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's interesting when you mention some of those dates because it was 95, 96 that I took a year out and trained for the Olympic trials. Yeah. And there was a stress of racing, but there was a whole stress about how do I fund myself? Am I going to okay. cut it at the highest level? Then 96 to 99 was my undergraduate where I was doing all the studying. And then my master's was 99 to 2001 where I started doing the applied work with British Swimming. So as I sort of had my head down studying for a few years, British, the landscape for British sport was completely changing. Mm -hmm. And then when I um, began the PhD in 2001, uh, yeah, the, the, the sands had really shifted and yeah. it was really timely both, and that was the, I was really lucky in that sense 
because it was really timely academic-wise in terms of creating the rationale for the journals. But in terms of reaching out to athletes and getting people to participate, people wanted to talk to me. The, you know, the, you mentioned the athletes, the coaches, okay. the performance directors. They all had something to say about the organisation of sport. So that's that's interesting that the athletes. Sorry, no, it's not interesting that they want to talk to you. That's that's obvious. But um, but it sounds as though they were experiencing change and potentially the outlet of researching was, was helping them reconcile to a certain extent. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you, you sort of <clears throat> joked a bit there about, um, you know, they, what they want to speak to me. Actually, of course, as a researcher, sometimes the last thing people want to do is fill out questionnaires or do another scientific study. Yeah. But when you showed up and explained the study and said one of the reasons we want to do this is to help you with these experiences... Mm. And that's a, a sort of another key learning point um, for scientists who are, are conducting research in the area is to make sure people understand why you're doing it. Um, but yeah, you're right. And well, we'll fast forward a bit, bit further into my PhD. Um, originally, we were going to um, design a new measure to try and um, capture these experiences, a questionnaire. And as we got into the PhD, we thought we don't really know enough yet to try and measure it. And what happened? was there was an Olympic team preparing for the Athens Games in yep. 2004 and they were looking very, very good going into the, um, mm. to the Games itself and they, they did terrible. Mm. Uh, it was a disaster and anyone who knows their sporting history will probably be able to figure out which team this was. Um, and this coincided with some links that Sheldon and I had. Uh, so we said, right, well, we'll do some interviews with this, this team because it sounds like it's a lot of organisational-related issues okay. that are derailing the team. And uh, that happened, and we uncovered all sorts of things. And it's interesting now, fast forward to the last year that we've just had around duty of care and athlete welfare. Mm. I mean, looking back now, the, the PhD was really ahead of its time yeah. because it uncovered all sorts of things. And um, funnily enough, it was so sort of controversial that we... Uh, we sought legal advice on, on the content because we were going to, um, to publish it. Uh, and there was some really quite you know, strong accounts in there. And so mm. I spent, my PhD got delayed, delayed by one year because I was in and out of um, a solicitor's office. Uh, I can remember you know, a big company in Cardiff going up to the top floor around a board table with three solicitors sat opposite me going through my PhD line by line saying there's this quote here, this claim here, can you justify this? Okay. And um, it delayed the uh, submission by over a year. Um, but I stuck to my guns because I was very sure in the account and I uh, felt very strongly by it. And it's, it's, ironically, it's probably the best research that I've conducted and it's never been published. Um, published for legal reasons in that sense? Initially, um, it, it was, uh, we were just being hyper cautious with it. Yeah. We, we were confident of our, our footing and our grounding. Um, but it got delayed by a couple of years um, for one reason or another and then I landed a job and then of course the job sort of took over and had other commitments and just never revisited it but it's um, again as a researcher it's it, it's interesting to sort of reflect on that when you're, you're trying to do cutting edge research because it, a lot of the studies before that had just identified the stresses. They, so athletes get stressed out by finances, they get stressed out by travel and all these things and that was great in terms of trying to identify what they are. It was great in terms of sort of teeing up a questionnaire. But there was this really rich case study that brought to life what it actually meant 
to be basically on your knees and in your life caving in around you. And you mentioned earlier about how the, the athletes actually wanted to talk to me about this topic area. I was conducting interviews and the athletes were crying saying my, my life is ruined because of this and I've trained and I've practiced and it really made me it, it brought a whole new dimension to, to me as a researcher and, and researching this topic area mm-hmm. so yeah, it was interesting so can, we, can you unpack that for us a little bit um, okay what what were the sort of basics that what were the stresses and the um, how did they report their symptoms and their experience yeah, they, as I say, because of the nature of the topic area, it tended to be quite negative, actually. I mean, you think about our own lives and, and the organisational stresses we experience in different jobs and the frustration frustrations that we experience. Um, they talked about it, you know, affecting their training, their well-being, uh, their health, things like burnout was a factor, uh, falling out with teammates and coaches, uh, feeling very frustrated and helpless that they, they couldn't feed back and uh, change the system. Uh, some of it was bordering on bullying. Um, so there were a lot of negative emotions coming out. I mean, there was a, a, a sort of silver lining to this cloud, though. Um, so, some of the really top-level athletes were man- managed to sort of turn this around and talk about how they would prove people wrong. Okay. Um, and how they used some of these experiences to harden themselves and toughen themselves up. And they thought, if I can get through this... it competing in the Olympic arena is not going to be a problem for me. Um, not all athletes could do that, but that for me um, sowed the seeds at the time for some of my later research, which I guess we might have time to come on to that, around the area of resilience and uh, also the topic area of adversarial growth, which is where we take these negative experiences and turn them into a positive. Mm. Um, but for me at the time, it was, it was quite dark content. I remember being affected myself as a researcher with hindsight more than I, I anticipated at the time. Mm. And I also remember going at the time to speak to the British Olympic Association about the research in uh, preparation for the 2008 Games and the lessons learnt. And it went fine, it went, went great, but I remember being on the tube on the way back, reflecting on it, thinking it was a bit negative. It was, I think they wanted something a little bit more upbeat. And I thought, how, you know, what, being a, a young a- academic and practitioner, I was sort of trying to reflect on it and thinking, what are some of the positive messages to come out of this? And I had a few uh, that I've just sort of talked about there. But I thought, you know what, I need to look at some areas of psychology that don't necessarily focus on the word stress. Okay. It's very negative and, and laden. And that's where I really came across uh, topic areas like resilience, hardiness, mental toughness, and I thought this is what I'm looking for mm. because this is stress related, but it's a much more positive spin on it. So you had to, so it sounds like you. Oh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm hearing that the stresses that people were experiencing weren't your just your day to day. It's hard work. You have to be fatigued to to get a, a response. Uh, we're talking about different stresses from leadership, environment, culture. Mm. Uh, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, leadership styles um, being um, very dictatorial in terms mm. of the way things are done. Particularly, some of the older athletes would find that very frustrating where they wanted input. Younger athletes don't tend to mind that as much, uh, but as they get older and more experienced, particularly yeah. the ones heading towards retirement, where they they were getting told when they had to train and those types of things, and they're saying, actually, I need a bit more rest because my body needs more yeah. time to recover. They weren't being listened to. There was 
you know, the, some of these stories you heard around the time, and indeed they, they continue to this day, ideas around sort of pressure training and p- p- putting people out. There's crazy stories coming out about um, athletes being sent out into the woods to camp for the night and being awoken by gunfire in the middle of the night. No, that wasn't a British anecdote, but that was um, a South African rugby team around the turn yeah. of the century, a f- sort of famous uh, case there. And um, that ended very sadly with um, a legal case. And in fact, there was a suicide involved. Um, so yeah this this whole space around stress and preparation for performing under pressure and people misinterpreting the idea of things like pressure training mm. um, arose around that time but that didn't sound like it was systematic pressure training necessarily it sounded like it was a regime that that was enforced in order to try and get results yes no you're right I think some of these um, experiences that they had were a consequence of the the leadership and the culture within that organisation and I think there was quite a lot of naivety around the time I I think there was some good intention there in the the sense of the Olympics is a a tough environment so people need to be tough and I I do, do get that and understand that I do think there's a there's an argument that if we don't prepare our athletes appropriately yeah. and then subject them to that environment, uh, then that's unethical, actually. Uh, so, you know, the two extremes uh, are not a place that we want to be. But going back to what mm. you were saying there, a lot of it comes from the leadership and the culture that's generated, and then that sort of permeates down. And what I found was quite interesting in some of my research was it wasn't just confined to the national team. Other people would see and observe that, whether it be through interviews in the media or whether it be CPD or, or coaching conferences. And then you'd see it going down to the grassroots of sport, even, even youth-level sport. Replicating the behaviours in that sense. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, these coaches would go to a conference, hear, you know, this top Olympic coach give a talk and say, you know, we're really driving our athletes in this way, that way. Mm. We're going on training camps, we're taking away TVs, we're taking away the bed, we're going to toughen them up, harden them up. And uh, this sort of philosophy permeated through, you know, some teams and sports that I saw in my research. Um, and as I say, unfortunately, it got a little bit sort of negative. And uh, as a researcher, there's only so much of that you can kind of take and, and hear. And it, it coincided with when I finished my PhD and started the job at Loughborough as a, as a full-time academic. Because I thought, I want to change slight direction with my research and give it more of a positive spin. Mm. Uh, and that's when I started researching uh, resilience and adversarial growth. So I remember reading in the lead-up to the Sydney Olympics about the South Korean archery team, and they, they put a, one of these sorts of programs in place. It was a program, mm. and, uh, and they had them jumping off cliffs, and they had them cleaning sewers, these sorts of things that, that ultimately was to try and toughen them up for shooting arrows. They had, I don't know what it was, they had something like the top 10 archers in the world. So if anyone said, I'm not going to do this, everyone just moved up. Um, But I couldn't quite ever see the connection between cleaning a sewer as a useful resourcefulness on the the line, shooting arrows, thinking, well, I've cleaned a sewer, so I'll be good at this. (laughs) A connection with that that pressure and and that... um, that confidence building seems like a connection. It sounds like there's a, a similar observation. Yeah. But yet you are still seeing some people turning this into a positive. If I can get through this, yeah. I, I'm going to be able to deal with anything. Yeah, it was, it was very much despite the system, not because of it, okay. in, in terms of these extreme examples. Um, and you have got a whole range. I mean, some of these obviously are very extreme. But you've also got the more insidious day-to-day stress, which might be um, 
just niggles with a, a teammate or it might be a disconnect with the coach so mm. the notion of stress or organisational stress can really vary quite considerably um, but I think some of these extreme examples where a case of a little bit of a knowledge is a dangerous thing where somebody would sort of think oh well we do need to put our athletes under some sort of pressure and then they take it to the extreme and as you say some of these examples you just go where's the relevance in that yeah. and also you know, where are the ethics in that because you, you, you're going to break people doing that type of thing um, so that was really unfortunate and luckily now 10-15 years later we've got a lot more knowledge around this and I think people are more uh, ethically aware I mean there are still some sort of hit things that you hear about because um, I think it would be a mistake to just say this is all wrong this is unethical we're not going to do any of this pressure training because as I said you flip the other way yeah. and you've got athletes that aren't prepared for um, really high demanding situations and, and life for that matter is tough and demanding it sounds like that day to day stress is potentially you know, from a biological point of view that's, that's just going to be elevated cortisol that's going to be stress based hormones that's going to chip away at their ability to, for their cells to adapt, for example, as well as the fact it's not going to feel good. And um, that, that being different from purposeful stress training to take you forward. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There are different psychosocial mechanisms, mechanisms at play there, but I think there are also different physiological mechanisms and some of the cortisol responses, for example, when you think of athletes in particular mm. and how important recovery and, and rest is, if between training sessions you're stressing about other related issues, you're not going to recover as well. Um, so I wouldn't argue that we have to you know, cover our athletes in cotton wool, but at the same time, some of the stories you hear and, and you think, well, actually, with a little bit of leadership training, a little bit of sort of cultural development in the right way, we could optimise this much better in terms of helping athletes, A, perform better, yeah. and B, enhancing their, their well-being too. So uh, that's frustrating as someone... You know, hearing these stories but particularly for the athletes because they weren't daft they, they understood that themselves but they didn't feel that they had a voice a lot of the time yeah. so so ultimately it's a, it's a delusion for, for someone to just sort of drift along everything's lovely everything's nice I'm, I'm coping with my training alright and I'm going to improve massively ultimately they're going to have to experience some some stress from a physiological point of view but here now you're you're building upon this idea of adversity being a stimulus for growth hmm. yeah so as I say my, my kind of interest as a, as a researcher changed a little bit and I, I looked at the idea of resilience and growth and there are a couple of things in this area I mean the first one is, is just building upon what we were saying around pressure training is how to do it right we've mentioned okay. a few examples of how it's gone disastrously wrong hmm. I think there are a few th key things that you need to keep in mind here first of all for the most part it should try and be relevant to the nature of the task so if you're an athlete and you're going to have to perform in demanding environments, how can we try to recreate some of that pressure? Now, obviously, you can't necessarily recreate um, a penalty shootout in front of a huge audience, yeah. um, but we can create um, emotions related to that and put athletes in, in demanding situations. So the idea of relevance, and not just competition, there's, uh, as I mentioned, there's all the, the stresses that aren't related to competition. So how can we help athletes travel around the globe in terms of preparing themselves for changes in sleep patterns and those types of things. So you can introduce pressure training in that way. Uh, so re relevance is important. And then the other one is making it um, um, progressively adaptable in the, it very much in a similar way to physiologically speaking. You, you wouldn't um, 
up the load that an athlete um, experiences in training physically overnight uh, in a, a huge significant way, just in the same way that you wouldn't place um, psychological related demands on, on athletes in that way. Well, I say you wouldn't, there are these cases that people do that. Mm. But we need to think about how we can have you know stepping stones up where athletes can adapt to those demands in much the same way that they do physically. Mm. So I think those are a few key areas around pressure training. And another one is getting the athletes buying themselves. So it's a collaborative effort where you're all talking about what you're trying to achieve and uh, trying to give it a bit of a fun angle as well. So you might have some consequences or forfeits um, that have a, a fun angle to them and they help with uh, team bonding and camaraderie as well. Mm. So, um, you know, I am a, b- a big fan of the approach if it's done correctly. Okay, so so I've heard of... Um of beastings from you know in the, in the military, for example, mm. that that's a consequence if you, but ultimately serves to develop their, their character and their physical development. Mm. Um, I've heard of ice baths being as a, a as a consequence of of someone not displaying the right behaviours in a, in a in a team, for example. Um, what are other, other examples have you have you um, come across? What in, in terms of the sort of extreme ones? The consequences or, yeah. of... It sounds, like, it sounds like the athletes have got to buy into it. We, we agree what the consequences might be. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, some of the extreme inappropriate ones uh, are things like the gunfire overnight, camping out, uh, having to kill wild animals, you know, these things that are just, again, they're not, they're not related, they're not progressive. So that's going wrong. In terms of getting it right... Um, I've, I've heard uh, consequences around someone's got to get up in front of the, the team and wear a silly hat and sing a song. Don't particularly want to do it, but they're, they're up for a bit of banter yeah. and no one, it's not ridicule as such, it's just sort of fun. Um, I've heard um, uh, in a youth programme where the, um, the athletes are brought into the idea of uh, they had to clean, clean um, the toilets and the showers area. No one wanted to do it, but you know, if if we don't, if someone's late to meetings or doesn't abide by team rules, they've got to do some of these um, yeah. jobs that are uh, less than sort of exciting. But you know, there's nothing, nothing kind of wrong with those. Admittedly, those sort of consequences aren't particularly relevant to high performance sport. But the key thing is, is the reason why you would be doing them is because they are related to high performance sport. So if we want to be a high performing team, we need to display these values, these behaviours, yeah. uh, arrive at team meetings on time. Um, Mm. Another one that we've we've used in swimming is um, you know you just have to do an extra rep at the end or you have to tow a parachute in the water which okay. makes it a bit tougher for right. you. So it's kind of consequences that give it a bit of an edge that you probably wouldn't want to do, but it's not going to be the end of the world if I do it. And actually, if I do do that, that'll actually um, give me a bit of confidence. Yeah, it sounds like it's vital that the team agree that up front, as opposed to we're just going to subject you with something that's going to humiliate you. Yeah, um, and you're not going to want to. You won't, won't want to do it necessarily, but you, if you take away that agreement, then it becomes a punishment as opposed to a consequence to an agreed behaviour. Exactly. I mean, these words like um, punishment, um, humiliation, mm. it, I don't think we want to be going there. But having consequences, I don't think there's any harm in that. I think you know, kids and adults have that all the time. And if we're trying to steer people down a path towards high performance, 
um, that that can be one tool to, to aid things. And as you say, buy-in from everybody. And the other good thing about the buy-in is you've got people who have got very specific knowledge about the sport. So as I alluded to earlier, I know a lot about swimming, but not about yeah. basketball. So I can give some tips and advice in a swimming context because I know it really well. But a lot of sports, so certainly at an elite level, I don't know like the coaches and athletes know. So I could explain the principles and then the coaches would go, well, what about this? What about this? And an athlete might chip in and go, oh, something that I did when I was there was this. Okay. So it becomes a very collaborative yeah. um, effort to find the most appropriate um, tasks at the most appropriate moments. So, um, so this is this is interesting in terms of being able to apply social, just some gentle social pressures, some some consequences to build some of that resilience step by step, so that people are progressing. So they're not on the start line all of a sudden just thinking, "Oh my God, who are all these people watching me do this thing?" Absolutely. Um, so th- that's a sort of a system that, that's culturing that growth. Talk to me a little bit about the the difficulties that people are experiencing in some of their early life as almost fuel for them getting into sport and it being facilitative to their own development. Yeah, no, and I said earlier when I got into this area of research, there's a couple of angles. The pressure training is one angle. The other angle is is what you were mentioning earlier there, which is sort of... It's, it's kind of uh, only emerged really the last few years in sport research. It's been around a bit longer in uh, other areas of high performance and high achievement. And there's this idea that um, people that go on and achieve at the highest levels have often experienced some sort of childhood adversity or trauma, quite a significant one. Things mm-hmm. like parental divorce, uh, major injury, illness. Uh, it could be moving away to boarding school, could be perceived as very traumatic. Um, the, the list goes on. And it, it does appear from the research that it's, it's quite disproportionate in terms of um, high achievers all having that in, within their personal uh, biographies. And um, there appears to be something not just about that experience on its own, because a lot of people have experienced yeah. adversities in their background, but having that experience alongside a few other events. Um, one, event that came, uh, one, yeah, one event that came out of the research uh, that they did at Bangor University with the great British medalists was the idea of a positive sporting um, experience closely aligned with this okay. negative uh, event. Uh, another factor that came out of some of our research was the idea of finding sport as a sanctuary. So we did some work again with the swimmers and a lot of the top level swimmers said that as their parents' divorce was, uh, and marriage was breaking down, they could go to the swimming pool and escape and submerge themselves in water. And they, one of the athletes talked about you know, almost going back to the womb and some of this quite vivid imagery and uh, metaphor. Um, another factor is having um, a mentor um, within the sport, so a coach or an inspirational moment. So mm-hmm. it appears that... Okay. There are a number of factors that all need to happen together, and one of the misunderstandings around this area of research is, well, why don't we just then subject athletes to adversity when they're eight, and we're going to produce a load of Olympic champions, and that's a gross misrepresentation of what the research is suggesting. Yeah, I remember Lou Hardy presenting at a conference uh, maybe two years ago now, and um, he was talking about the, the importance of this difficulty, acting as fuel. And, uh, and someone put their hand up and said, oh, I've got a five-year-old. How much trauma is about, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what you're, what you're talking about isn't necessarily manipulating that, but it's, it's the, the other aspects around it that support this as, a, as providing a trajectory for somebody. 
Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think there's, uh, I mean, I'm not a specialist in this area, but I think there's research around performance enhancing drugs, but by definition, they enhance performance. It doesn't mean that just because they enhance performance, I'm going to give somebody drugs. There's research around childhood adversity, plus these other events, potentially. It doesn't mean that I'm going to engineer all of that because it would be unethical. Um, But as you said there, the implication for sports psychologists and other coaches and, and the parents of of children who've been through this is actually if you harness it in the right way and you can create the environment around the athlete and mm. well not just the athlete the individual person around experiencing some success it may be that that provides a springboard onto future success there's one caveat to that though it doesn't necessarily protect them from the mental health issues that might arise as a consequence and this for me is where it gets really interesting mm. because there is a lot of research that shows uh, that if you experience childhood adversity, it is linked to um, mental health issues later on in life. That's independent to, to sport. And so it's this idea that people can go on and become high performers in sport, in academia, in business, or in the arts, uh, music, ballet. Um, but it doesn't necessarily protect them from that. So you could look okay. at, uh, I mean, anecdotally, maybe you know, George Best, Paul Gascoigne, you know, amazing top-level athletes, but they had their demons too. Mm. Okay, so you're so there's quite it's quite an interesting few concepts here in terms of potentially lessons for us all that when people are experiencing some of these ad, uh, adversities, they you, we can find ways to support them to flourish, use it as a, a fuel to reprove themselves or rediscover themselves or act as an outlet. Yeah. How, how best can can parents and people support? somebody going through that yeah the, the, actually one of the first things to do is to give people space actually um, what okay. we've found in, in not just our research actually but there's research outside is that people want to go into their shell a bit and they have this this sanctuary that some of the athletes have talked about um, and it's allowing people to have that space and time but making sure that they know that there is people that they can speak to. Now, it might be a parent, it might be a psychologist, it might be a coach, it might be a peer, it might be a mentor, mm. it might be a role model. But making sure they know that a raft of people are there when they're ready to speak to them. And then hopefully when they do begin to what we call in the literature disclose, they'll start saying a few things and opening up. And then, of course, that's where their um, counselling skills uh, c- come in. Mm. But, I think one of the mistakes can be to try and go in and do too much of that too soon. I see. Um, I mentioned earlier about um, experiencing positive experiences elsewhere in life. So sport is one area, but mm. also in academia. So anything you can do to engineer some of those things and have some inspirational moments. Now that might be in the sporting world showing clips from major games, but it might be going to... Um, I don't know, you know, we live near Leicester, the Space Museum in Leicester, and the, the, the six-year-old who's going through a troubled time looks up and sees some, you know, video about space. Mm. That could inspire them to go on and, and achieve wonderful things in that area. So it's it's really making a very... As parents, I think we all try and do that all the time with our kids, try and inspire them on a day-to-day basis. But I think it becomes really important when they're going through hardship and diff- difficult times uh, around uh, making sure that they know those people are there and that, that we try and make sure that there's a few things within the environment that can inspire them. So there's inspirational kind of experiences that you're referring to there, but ultimately this is, quite, this is reframing, isn't it? The, the thinking, um, this, this, this could be an opportunity just to 
ruminate and dwell and and almost feel put upon but this is also an opportunity to to go and go and demonstrate what you can contribute to the to the world yeah absolutely actually and that's a really good point because often where people go wrong in this area is they do ruminate over the injustice and that goes from weeks to months it turns into years and mm. the people who grow the best from adversity there, there comes this turning point where they disclose to other people and what they do is they acknowledge well I need to leave behind the past and I need to reconstruct myself in a different way so when I talk about this in lectures I talk about the idea of a vase breaking and uh, people who try and put the vase back together in the same way. And I talk about um, an athlete who gets injured in the lead-up to Olympic Games. Um, and they're desperately trying to hold on to their dream of the Olympic Games, but they just they physically can't move. So that's not particularly functional. Or they um, then try and put the vase back together in the sort of same way, yeah. but they're not quite the same athlete. Whereas the athletes um, that really harness these experiences and use them in the right way, they put it together in a different way and it might be a, um, a mosaic that's, yeah, like I said, they've put the pieces back in a different way and I'm a new athlete. And anecdotally, you could mention a few athletes that have had devastating injuries but they've mm. come back. I mean, uh, one, one that springs to mind is a guy called Leon Taylor who got an Olympic silver medal yeah. dive. I mentioned I was at, at Cheltenham Swimming Club and we were in the same age group uh, we mm. raced each other every week and so oh, he's, just, he's the best commentator on earth by yeah, the way go it, on, go on, keep it, going it, well it's again <laughs> we talked about my background at the, at the top of this interview and growing up with Leon he taught me a lot about psychology uh, competing against him every week because he's just so enthusiastic oh, and confident the, the, I want to hear what your point is but um, it was struck by the 2016 games and, and he just um, he would call a dive so what happened? The dive just fell into the water as far as I was concerned. He called it. I think it wasn't quite this, that, and the other. And then it was played back in slow motion. It was absolutely spot on. It always. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, Go on, tell us about Leon. But uh, with Leon, he had a devastating injury. Um, I think it might have been, yeah, the Sydney Olympic Games. And, and mm. really huge shoulder problems. Came fourth place. A lot of people said they got, you know, outdone by the judges and the politics of the sport because it's obviously subjective yeah. so he was he had a low ebb after that games but he said without that experience and bouncing back from that he doesn't think that he would have gone on to win the silver at Athens he said it sort of made him as a as a person and as an athlete and then you think of someone like Jess Ennis I mean just anecdotally I don't know Jess but I know you've worked with her mm. but um, she obviously missed out on the games in 2008 due to injury yeah. and then uh, bounced back to win the gold it'd be interesting to see if she thinks that um, having that moment where she thought she'd lost everything and her world had collapsed whether then that gave her a slightly different perspective when she went back to training for London and maybe realised just how lucky she was and that mm. sort of thing so um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think someone, someone like Jess is in a position where the 2008 type discussions um, uh, we're putting a, the rehab program in place it, it meant it was a really fertile place for us to have discussions about what do we need to put in place for you to be bulletproof for London yeah. um, so, sorry to cut in but actually that's just reminded me one of the other key things in terms of bouncing back from adversity is often it's the adversity that gives you that honesty because yeah. if everything's going along on an even keel and everything, yeah. you're just going through the motions. Whereas you have this devastating moment, and people get round a table and go, "Right, this this is really how it is." And by the way, this happened a few months ago that I wasn't, and it opens up all these doors. And you have to be honest yeah. and truthful and self-reflective. Uh, so that's another key factor that you need to engineer at some mm -hmm. point in the pathway back back to your previous mm -hmm. performance. 
So, so you mentioned there that, that concept of how it can be a sanctuary for, for athletes, uh, getting involved in sport, using these positive experiences of achieving to overcome uh, some of the adversity. Um, but you also recognise that perhaps when sport isn't there, it, it can be destructive, it can be mm. corrosive in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier on that um, there is this link between childhood adversity and mental health issues. And I do wonder sometimes whether the success that some of the athletes have in sport and the adulation mm. almost masks some of these issues. And when they retire, um, that, that, you know, they don't just struggle with the lack of identity as an athlete, yeah. but these other issues re-emerge as well. And one thing that we haven't talked too much about is the idea that when they've had this um, childhood adversity, it sort of slightly changes their personality and they become very single-minded and focused and dedicated to, to achieve their goal. And it's, there's some, some, probably some Freudian psychology going on here in terms of redressing a wrong and if I can prove myself in the sport domain, I make myself worthy and addressing feelings of inadequacy. Um, so there's the mental health issues related to the trauma, but there's also the changes in personality related to, as I say, selfishness, narcissism, single-mindedness, which are all characteristics that are fantastic if you want an Olympic gold medal and be resilient under pressure. But of course, they're not particularly good characteristics if you want to interact socially with people, if you want to yeah. maintain a, 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 mental, yeah. a, a mental health. So a lot of the top athletes are very good at switching in and out of these. So when they're training, they're fully focused, but right. actually outside of the training context, they're lovely people, almost a Jekyll and Hyde type personality. Okay. Not necessarily in a bad way, they just know how to, they're self-reflective enough that they know how to turn it on and off. But as you say, some of the athletes can uh, struggle with the retirement and um, you know, particularly when you, you know, that coincides with having a family and things like that and the whole idea of being selfish in, in that context, which is not going to work. So it's another reason why we need things like um, performance lifestyle advisors, uh, we need psychologists to help with that transition mm. and make people really aware of the changes that are going to happen um, if you, you know, do get married, if you have kids. Uh, and I think it's not just athletes as well, it's coaches too. Um, some of the coaches have um, sort of unfinished business from their own sporting careers, yeah. which fuels that fire to make them top coaches because they feel like they've got unfinished business and they want to resolve a few things. And that, again, great to be a top-level coach. Whether that's conducive to having a family life as well is, is up for some debate, I think. Well, I mean, I remember your, your research around coach stresses and affecting their well-being and, and, and their performance because they're almost always on and it's obsessive. And um, I wonder if we're doing enough around that to support them through that process, but also to, to enable them to to achieve themselves their optimum performance mm, yeah no I mean we wrote a paper nearly 10 years ago and I remember the last couple of paragraphs where I made them quite hard hitting in the sense that yeah. we have a duty of care for these coaches um, sport organisations their employers and the reviewers for the paper said this is a bit strong take this out and um, I stuck to my guns and I said actually I think this is the most important messages to come out of this and even 10 years on, I still don't think we do nearly enough for the coaches. We've, you know, the last year, athlete welfare has been thrown under the spotlight because of some high-profile cases. But I wonder in the next five years, maybe whether coaches, are, they're going to get more exposure in this area. And I do hope that we can help them more because 
you know, psychologists and performance lifestyle advisors are well placed to do this. Mm. And so many suffer in silence. That's another interesting thing. Some of the research that I've done with coaches and indeed the, the work that I've done with coaches, they sort of think, uh, you know, I've got to be tough. I've got to be um, confident. I've got to look focused and on top of things all the time for my athletes. Um, so they, they, they do. That's the phrase. They suffer in silence. And then before mm. you know it, they, they might have alcohol problems, the relationship might be breaking down, their performance as a coach isn't sustainable, they, you know, they may get through one Olympic cycle, but then gearing up again for the next one's is hard work. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be, you know, one of the strongest advocates for supporting the coaches better, actually, and mm. trying to get them to open up and, and talk. And I suppose underlying this is that no worthwhile goal lacks its challenges. You know, you, you've got to, you, you've, you've got to go through the the difficult times and the graft and feeling tired or um, working hard to something that you really want to achieve. I mean, that, that is what it's about, but not necessarily to, to a destructive level. Yeah, that's it. And um, it's, you know, these phrases winning at all costs and, and you know, where does high achievement spill over into obsessiveness and, mm. you know, it's, it is an issue. And, uh, I think there are conversations, quite tough conversations to be had there. I think it's been swept under the carpet a bit and it, the tide's changing a little bit now. Um, but yeah, coaches definitely we need to bring into that discussion and, and try and help them better in terms of their lives and their lifestyle, their overall health. And, you know, I think of my sport in swimming. I mean, the lifestyle is they're on the road, they're at training camps, they're away a lot, they're, the poolside, it's, it's humid, they they're eating in cafeterias, they're not getting exercise themselves, they're not really getting away from the team, they're staying mm. at the hotel yeah. with them, so you, you think about their lives and it's, it's, it's a tough profession at the highest levels. Yeah, that's not healthy, but it doesn't really sound like getting the most out of yourself. I mean, I've been in the Olympic environments so many times when coaches are under stress, they haven't got as much to do because the athletes are training less, but they're full of anxiety, they're full of stresses, and they don't know how to cope with it. That's not them at their best making good decisions for the athletes to be able to support them to perform. Mm. No. So, okay, this, this is quite heavy going, isn't it, this? But we were, um, <laughs> but and I could talk through this, this topic um, for hours on end, and maybe we re revisit it at some point. But So uh, if, I, if I'm an athlete, or if I'm a coach, or potentially if we zoom this out to to the every person on, you know, the, the, the average person on a Clapham omnibus or something. What would be your advice mm. as to how they can turn adversity into a, an opportunity for growth? Mm. I think a couple of things. The first thing, and you mentioned it earlier actually, was if you're going to do anything worthwhile, it's going to be challenging. It doesn't mm. matter whether it's sport or any other area of life. And so that's the, the, the starting point is I would always support anyone who, who wanted to achieve better so the first thing is around awareness is don't be seduced by the idea that well if I win an Olympic gold medal or if I make a million or wherever it might be everything's going to be fine and I think as a psychologist I make a bit of a distinction between performance and performance enhancement around mental health and well-being and around um, social interaction and social desirability and as one goes up, it doesn't mean all of the others are going to go up. Actually, one can trade off on the other one. So I think, first of all, a recognition that what works in different areas is, can be slightly different. And mm. at different times in your life and in your career, you need to maybe pay attention to, to different areas. So if you're in the build-up to Olympic Games, it might be that performance is your sole focus. 
um, and, and things around you know an overall holistic lifestyle sort of takes a bit of a, a, a hit or suffers. But it's it's building in plans to help help redress that balance okay. later on. Uh, you mentioned around turning uh, turning the adversities um, into more positive experiences, and we've touched upon a few of those things. I mean, the key thing is to try and have a really good support network around you of people that you know, uh, you trust, and that are sensible and have your best interests at heart. And that doesn't always happen actually in elite sport, but um, that's a key factor. Um, and yeah, for for me athletes and coaches just recognising just because you might be on the top of the world at what you do uh, is that sort of papering over a few cracks that might appear when somebody uh, retires if you genuinely care about somebody mm. uh, you'll try and address some of those issues on an ongoing basis and uh, I mean that's one of the advice I give to trainees and students I said if you're going to go out and work in the real world one of the biggest things is you've got to care about people that, that this profession we're in is a helping profession it's a service profession and even if you're looking to strive for high levels of performance if you don't care about that person as an individual mm. I don't think you're going to be as good at your job as you can be mm. so there's a huge amount there in terms of just taking the perspective that you know if you, if you want to achieve you you've got to you've got to see the challenges ahead mm. become aware of those and begin to plan meticulously to to address those ultimately mm that's going to help you through some of the, the difficult times as well as you mentioned that social support that seems so critical in that disclosure phase but also sharing some of your stresses so that you can, you can get some support through, mm. through those times. And a couple, of thing, you know, a couple of things that I've been thinking about with athletes is often they feel that they've got to present this really tough image to people mm. and be indestructible so it's, it's having that confidence to disclose to people um, how you're feeling so that's absolutely key there. Mm. Where's this field going, David? It would give us your sort of hope, top hope as to where it's, where it's moving. Well, a couple of things, actually. In terms of uh, the actual research that's being conducted, at the moment it's fairly early days. Um, some of it is fairly anecdotal-based research. Mm. Um, there are a few more robust studies coming out there, so it would be good to um, explore that in a bit more detail and look at the links between adversity and performance and mental health issues for athletes I think there's scope there for improvement um, I also think that the other exciting areas is working alongside practitioners uh, not just psychologists but also performance lifestyle advisors uh, coaches uh, leaders within the high performance environment yeah. about how they can better support athletes um, both in both on a one-to-one -one basis but also culturally and environmentally what can we do to actually change the culture within a sport yeah. where people feel that they can disclose yeah. And also giving people just a better understanding around the idea that um, you know when they go through tough times, it is possible to turn them around. And I'm not for one second uh, downplaying um, how harsh and disturbing some adversities are. And I'm also not suggesting that it's easy. Uh, but what I am suggesting is that there are things we can do to increase the chances of getting through that positively mm. and um, enhancing performance. And it, in, indeed, it. You know, a lot of athletes that come through the other end also talk about having a greater awareness of social responsibility, going out into the community and helping yeah. people. So the ripples go far and wide, actually. Mm. So, oh, well, thank you so much, David, for, for sharing your thoughts with us and, and uh, unveiling this, this area. I mean, I, I wonder if, uh, if we need to look back at your career and, 
and thank not only you're not you're not getting through to the Olympic team in 95, 96, uh, yeah. but also that sports management uh, module that you did and, and the success that was aligned with that that created your energy in, in trying to look at this area, um, such a valuable contribution. And, uh, and thank you for being so brave in, in telling it like it is in some of those conclusions in your papers and, and driving this field. I think it's a, it's a huge area that we're all benefiting from. Great. Thank you, David. Great stuff. Thank you. Thanks. I hugely valued that conversation with David. Uh, it was really great to hear an expert exploring such a valuable area. Um, some of my take-homes from that were just about, actually from David's early career, about culturing curiosity in his early formative years, but also him standing by his principles to, to not only unearth but communicate important messages that we can all benefit from. I found it fascinating about how pressure training can be effective if it's relatable, if it's progressive and if, if it's agreed within the group. It was interesting to hear about the importance of adversity as an agent to facilitate uh, achievement and how that's a delicate tightrope. Also, there's a great point there about how critical leadership is in creating a culture that can permeate and magnify behaviours for the benefit of all. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and at support underscore champs. You can subscribe to these podcasts on iTunes and YouTube or subscribe for further performance updates at supportingchampions.co.uk. Join us next time when I'll be interviewing Jenny Rogers on coaching.